One of the things we say at this church uh, is that uh, no person in this church is the head of this church. Not me as a senior pastor, not any of the elders, not some long-standing member. Christ is the head of the church. And he rules the church by his word. So that's our conviction here. We just want to follow Jesus and we believe he speaks through his word. So that's why uh, our, our regular practice on Sunday morning is just to open up um, and preach through a book of the Bible. And we preach whatever's next in line. Right now we're preaching through the book of Isaiah. And I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Isaiah. We'll be in chapters 46 and 47. If you don't know where to find that, you can take the Bible that's in the rack in front of you. And you can turn to page 607. 607 is where we find Isaiah 46 and 47. One of our practices, just to, to show, like, you know, there's a sermon time, but the sermon's only trying to explain what we read from God's Word and, and, and dwell on that. And one of the ways we show that the most important thing we do is the reading of God's Word, where we hear God, is, is we'll, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 46 and 47. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who've been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and a gray hair, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or saved from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You are far from righteousness. I'll bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I'll put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. 
Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour, put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of all your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments, your many sorceries with which you've labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You're wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you, those who divide the heavens and gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they're like stubble. Fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you've labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There's no one to save you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it's not just me offering a prayer right now. Together, together all who have your spirit, we unite our prayer. Hear our voices. Hear our prayers. Come down, Holy Spirit. Quicken our hearts. And for those who have your spirit, 
Stir us, fill us, cause us to believe your word, to live in light of it, to be shaped by it. We're asking for a mighty work of your spirit as not not just uniquely today, but every, every time we open your word, every Sunday as we gather, speak to us, shape us, mold us, give us faith, give us eyes to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If the uh, evangelical church in North America is somewhat sickly, and I believe it is, one of the causes of that sickness is this. It does not understand the first verse of 1 Peter. In the first verse of 1 Peter, it calls the church elect exiles. Well, elect means we're God's chosen people. But what does exiles mean? What is our true home if we're exiles? What foreign land are we living in? If it's written there in 1 Peter, maybe it's Rome. Right? That was the first... Uh, that was the place for the first audience of First Peter. But that word exile in First Peter harkens back to Israel's time in exile when they were in exile in Babylon. And in Revelation, when God gives John visions to help Christians endure to the end, which nation does he choose to symbolize their oppressor. It's Babylon. Great and magnificent Babylon. The one through whom, Revelation tells us, all the nations enjoy sexual immorality. The one through whom all the nations have grown rich. The one through whom all nations enjoy luxurious living. So yes, a long, long time ago, Babylon was Babylon. And yes, somewhat long time ago, Rome was Babylon. But Babylon in Scripture also serves as a sort of embodiment of the world in rebellion against God. Her roots go all the way back to the Tower of Babel, And this city stands as the foil to Zion up until the very end when Revelation describes her destruction destruction and the establishment of the new and eternal Zion or Jerusalem. But because we don't realize we are in exile in Babylon, her waters seep right into the church. We suckle at her chest, dying from the very milk we think is giving us life. But church, we are not called to be reprobate Babylon. We're called to be elect exiles.
If we're a band-aid sticking like glue to Babylon, we don't need to be kind of slowly pulled off. It just needs to be ripped off. Cut off from the flow of the milk that's poisoning us. Now Isaiah, prophesying before Babylon would even be a world power, was told by God to warn future Israelites about Babylon, in part to dissuade them from drinking her milk. And as elect exiles, that message is needed every bit as much for us today. So are we ready to be ripped off the arm of Babylon? Are we ready to be cut from the milk? I hope we are. I've been praying that we are. I pray that God would use this passage to wean us from Babylon. As two main sections This one's pretty obvious. Chapter 46, an appeal. Chapter 47, an expose. An appeal, an expose. Together, they should wean us. So let's start with chapter 46, an appeal. An appeal from whom? An appeal for what? Let's have a look. The chapter... Contrast the gods of the Babylonians with the true God. And it does that twice. First in verses 1 to 5, and then in verses 6 to 13. So verses 1 and 2 describe the gods of Babylon. Mighty Bel, the greatest of the ancient pagan gods, perhaps akin to Zeus and then his son Nebo, who wouldn't rise to prominence until later in the Babylonian era. But there, when we're introduced to them, what are these gods doing? Stooping down. Because, it's implied, Babylon has been crushed. And so her gods are being carted off and carried away. Carted off is not quite the right word. They're loaded down on beasts to be carried off by the conqueror, no doubt to strip their gold and jewels. It's a sorry but comical description, laced with irony. These gods had been entrusted with carrying the Babylonians to victory, and now the same gods that were supposed to carry them are being carried by beasts into exile. And the beasts themselves with the gods are weary from the load. Can you imagine how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have felt when they, from heaven's perspective, saw this scene? I mean, they'd seen Babylon in all her splendor the mighty empire full of wealth and luxury and pleasure, everything this world could afford. And they were palace officials offered the best, the best food, the best wine, the best lodging. 
And they were told this was all dependent on their homage to a certain mighty idol, Bell. And so they're forced to bow. Bow to these gods that have proven, proven to be the greatest. Bow to these gods who afford you everything you could ever want. Bow to our gods. Have you ever felt that pressure today? Bow to our gods. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not because they knew Yahweh was the one true God. And now these same idols they were told to bow to are the ones stooping and bowing, carried by beasts. And then the contrast comes in verses 3 to 5. You see in verse 3, the first words, an appeal. Listen to me. Kids, I know some of the kids are at the junior high retreat right now, but kids, do you ever hear those words in your home or in school? Listen to me. What usually follows? What might you expect Yahweh to say after hearing him say, listen to me. What is it that he wants us to hear? A couple of weeks ago, I stood behind this pulpit, shocked that at what Yahweh said in chapter 43, I love you. And he says something I think almost as shocking here. So listen again as I read what he has to say. House of Jacob, who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. Is that what you're expecting Yahweh to say? I've carried you from the womb and I will carry you into old age. I made you, bore you, and I will save you. They're tender, gentle, assuring words. It's the God of the universe saying these words to his people who are elect exiles. In some ways, these words are uniquely true of God's Old Testament covenant people, Israel, the house of Jacob, to whom they were originally spoken. But when we consider Psalm 139 and Ephesians 1.4, we know they are true for all of us who turn to Jesus. Whatever you came into this building with, whatever is beating you up or maybe cheering you up, let these words from God wash over you. Marinate in them. 
been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I'll bear, I'll carry, and will save. I know there's some with gray hair who think they've been put on the shelf and forgotten. I'll carry you, even your gray hairs. And did you catch the intended irony in what Jesus says or when God says here? The idols who could not carry the Babylonians are being born or carried by animals. But the God of the universe has born or carried his people from birth all the way to old age and will save them. Bell had his moment in the sun, but he ultimately bows and stoops. But Shadrach's God, he made the sun, and he will never leave us or forsake us. He holds us and he saves. As exiles surrounded by Babylon and her bells and nebos, we are going to be tempted to bow. But know that even in exile, Yahweh our God is holding us. Listen to me, he says. I've carried you. I will carry you. Then verse 5 bridges these two sets of comparisons. Look at verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? And that takes us to the second set of comparisons beginning at verse 6. And again, it's a sort of comical, mocking description of the great gods of man, which are so pathetically man-made. Get some coins from your purse, put them on the scale, say, uh, could you use that to make an idol? Sure. And then we bow to it. it. Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by the 16th century philosopher Montaigne. He says, man is quite insane. He wouldn't know how to create a maggot, and he creates gods by the dozen. See, man-made gods are made in our image. They value what we value. They believe what we believe. They think what we think, and they affirm us in all that we think is good. And they give us all we could possibly want. They are our glory. And we buff them up and glint them with our finest and set them up, immobile, for all to see and worship. Bow down, Meshach, or we'll put you in the furnace. But you know what else man-made gods can't do besides move? They cannot save. When life's going great, when everything is how we think it should be, well, these gods are an homage to our greatness. But when we are in need, 
real need and we cry out to them, they're as death as the gold they're made out of. What would you say are the idols of present-day Babylon? Sex? Pleasure? Self-worth? Money? Maybe I've maybe thought of something different. When you're riding high, those things look awfully beautiful. But you better believe they're death. They will not be able to save you in the dark night of your soul. Now compare that to the true God, Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, in verses 8 to 13. He writes the future, which is why he can declare the end at the beginning, verse 10. It's why he can call this, this bird of prey, Cyrus, from the east to come and conquer the Babylonians, verse 11. That's why he can divide the languages of the people so that Babel's tower can't be built back in Genesis 11. And as verse 10 says, he proves he has this kind of power by declaring it ahead of time. He's not a man-made God. And then in verse 12, he makes another appeal. Listen to me. I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. Parents, have you ever heard your kids say that? Listen to me! What typically follows? Mom, I love you so much. You're the best mom in the whole world, and I just want you to know that. We wish. But God says something to us like this. It's just like, Stop. Look me in the eyes, slow down. That's the vibe of it. He says, listen to me. And what did he say? Verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I'll put my salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. He says, I'm going to bring near my righteousness and bring about my salvation soon. First, by delivering Israel from her exile. But ultimately, by delivering all his exiles from Babylon. Again, if you think I'm stretching these connections, go back and read Revelation 18, which even quotes from our passage. This is what God is doing. He's bringing near his salvation. He's bringing us salvation. Sorry, he's bringing near his righteousness. He's bringing us salvation. And when we experience Yahweh's salvation, instead of the gods being made in our image, reflecting our glory, God's people are made in his image, reflecting his glory.
You see, he buffs and glints us, not us, him. And we need buffing. We need glinting. It's an understatement. Because, do you know what we're like when God says he's carrying us? Do you know what we're like when he promises us this salvation? Some of us need to hear this answer. All of us need to hear it. But some of us especially need to hear it because we, we can't get our minds around it. What are we like when God saves us? You see it in verse 8? You transgressors. And then in verse 12, you stubborn of heart. Hebrews, you're bull-hearted, stubborn as a mule. And then again in verse 12, you who are far from righteousness. He has to bring his righteousness near because we are far from it. He must save us because we are transgressors. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus in Mark 2, 17. But God's appeal is, listen to me. Listen and believe that he loves and carries us Sinners. That he'll bring near his righteousness and save. Now, it's easy to say, he might push back. But how do we know it's true? Well, the two commands to listen are bracketed with two other commands in verses 8 and 9. Do you see them? says, remember. Remember the many times God has foretold the future and know that he is the one true God. And so his promises are sure. His word can be trusted. And we've seen this play out because he has brought near his righteousness and his salvation, hasn't he? Yes, we see in history how he raised up Cyrus as he promised, but more importantly, he sent Jesus who took our sins upon himself on the cross so that through him we could be made righteous. So that through him sin and death could be conquered. In other words, so that through him our world could be saved. Remember, and so listen to him. That's his appeal to you and me. It's a gracious 
tender appeal. Let's listen. Chapter 46. And yet, and yet with a God like that, we're still nursing on Babylon's toxic milk. So we need Babylon exposed. Exposed for who she really is and exposed for what will become of her. So let's look at that expose in chapter 47. In verses 1 to 5, we see this great reversal. The bell of the ball becomes the outcast. The Hollywood starlet who has the world at her fingertips, who lives the life we all wish we could live, ends up naked working in a grain mill after being carried, being carried through a river of exile on her way to exile. The end of verse 1, you see it there, says, you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Reversal. The end of verse 5 says, You shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms. Reversal. And in between, some stuff that's not exactly PG, which isn't God being crass, but it is Him using evocative imagery to demonstrate the level of humiliation Babylon will endure and it's actually appropriate imagery for a nation that both literally and metaphorically was marked by adultery. Christians, teenagers in this room, C and C's, everyone. Babylon looks like it offers so much when you're in high school, you think the cool girl will be the cool girl forever. But no, it's a house of straw. And one day, the match is going to be lit and it'll be exposed. Don't chase the girl who ends up destitute and exposed. There is no true safety in her. She can't promise to you in the same way Yahweh does because her promises are empty and she can't deliver. The listen to verse 4 is jarringly placed in the middle of this section, so much so that one commentator flat out said, this verse may be out of place. But it's not out of place because there's a war inside of us, Babylon or Yahweh. Listen to what verse 4 says. Our Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Listen. So Babylon's going to fall hard. There will be a grand reversal. Why is that? Verses 6 to 8 answer. 
because of her treatment of Israel, because of her love of pleasure, because of her self-assured pride. Babylon was God's ordained instrument of judgment on rebellious Israel. But Babylon was unaware that she was a pawn in God's hand. If she'd looked to Yahweh, she would have meted out the justice he required, but also shown mercy, especially to the elderly. But Babylon was instead cruel. And even when God is using your cruelty to his ends, you are still culpable for it. Just because God works all things for good does not mean that the evil we do goes unpunished. His ability and power over all things to work them towards his intended end does not abolish our culpability. But look at verse 8, which gets to the root of who Babylon really is. Listen to what she says of herself there at the end of verse 8. I am, and there is no one besides me. She repeats it at the end of verse 10. I am, and there is no one besides me. Turn back in your Bible, just one page to chapter 43, or I guess it's a couple pages. Verse 11, what God says, I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. Do you see the parallel? You see, when we deny the true God, we inevitably make ourselves God. We're still building our Babel towers, trying to prove to God and the world how strong we are, how godlike we are. My future is flood proof. My future is secure because of me. And if we can't see how obviously we're doing that today, making ourselves out to be God and rejecting the true God, it's only because we're blind. We look at the very bodies, physical bodies that God gave us and say, no, if I feel my body's wrong about my gender, I am the God and I get to decide that. Or we look at the reproductive complementary complementarity. That's a word that God created between male and female. And then say, no. If I want reproductive intimacy with one with the same body as mine, I am God. And I decide that. Or we can look at the most vulnerable life on either end, unborn and those infirmed or nearing the end and say it is not god to it's not god's to give and take life it's up to us there's no way to understand these than serious rejections of the creator 
They're bold, not subtle declarations that we are God and there is no other. So sex is recreation instead of a sacred gift. The human body is there for me to look at naked on the screen to salute my own pleasure guilt-free. This is Babylon. Lovers of pleasure, their own God. And it's precisely because of these things that God will expose her. The reversal will come. Verse 9 reiterates that. These are two things. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The very things she said couldn't happen. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. As we saw, verse 10 reiterates who she really is. But evil, or she said, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. Does that not read like a description of our own day? Babylon's alive and well. And we must be ripped from her quickly. Now, you may wonder if it's accurate for me to be saying that Israel was tempted toward Babylon. After all, wasn't Babylon her captor? I mean, verse 6 told us that she mistreated Israel, which is part of why she's going to be judged. But think about it. You're, You're taken into exile, and then you see all that Babylon was enjoying. There's a certain allure to that. And though we know that Israel maintained some semblance of devotion to Yahweh, it's clear throughout Isaiah and also the rest of the scriptures that such a devotion to Yahweh was syncretistic at best. That is to say, it had a certain veneer of genuine Judaism, but underneath it, it held the pagan values of Babylon. And that's how it is today, too. The church can have a veneer of Christianity, but underneath so many, the values are of our present Babylon. Which is why Babylon needed to be exposed so that we can rip the band-aid off. Verse 4 makes really clear this is Yahweh versus Babylon, and to whom will we turn? Now, the final five verses of the chapter mock Babylon's magic arts. There's always been an obsession with knowing the secrets, the the hidden secrets of the universe, tapping into the stars or palms or the dead to discover otherwise unknown mysteries. It's always been that way and it always will be. And Babylon was no exception. Far from it. She had the best astrologers and sorcerers around which played into how secure she felt my lucky rabbit's foot has gotten me through so many battles so I know it can be trusted as the god of the universe sat at the helm Babylon rose and it seemed like her cherished spells and star reading were working 
but it was all a mirage, a happenstance used by the devil to deceive. And when Cyrus and the Persians sacked Babylon, she could recite her incantations till she was blue in the face and they weren't going to do her any good. And the last line of the chapter is the bottom line. There is no one to save you. Sorcery, witchcraft, astrology, fortunes. Christians, these are not things for play. They are part and parcel of Babylon. I think the danger in playing with them is that they can suddenly, through demonic happenstance, appear to have power. But these things that God makes a mockery of shouldn't be dabbled in. Nor should we dabble with any of what marks Babylon. Yes, her sorcery, but her love for pleasure, her lack of mercy, her willful self-assurance. I mean, it can all look so promising. Like, oh, those waters look so pristine and, and comfortable over there. Well, don't be fooled. Our Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. He carried us from the womb and will until old age. He will bring His righteousness near. He will save. So let's get our milk from Him not from Babylon. Let's yoke ourselves to him, not to Babylon. Because as Abednego learned, mighty Babylon ultimately falls. But Yahweh does not. When we cry to him, he hears. And you don't need special chants or spells Because like a mother, he's holding us in his arms. So we need to get 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 clear in our minds. We are elect exiles. We belong to Yahweh and to his land. A future Zion, a future Jerusalem, that's our home. In the meantime, we live in Babylon. A Babylon that can seem so attractive and inviting. A Babylon that's seeping into the church because we aren't even aware that we're exiles. Rip the band-aid off. Cut off the supply of toxic milk and instead turn to Jesus who says, you have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. Let's pray. Sinners, transgressors, bull-hearted people far from righteousness. Yet, 
we are in Christ, you tell us. You've carried us from the womb. You'll carry us to gray hairs. And you're not going to leave us. You're going to save us. You've brought your righteousness near in Christ. May we look entirely to you, the Lord of all. Amen.